the Irish Times Inside Business podcast in association with Davy. It's amazing what you discover when you really listen. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. Later in the show, we'll be talking about the future of Ulster Bank. Will it stay or will it go? We should know on Friday when its UK parent, NatWest, publishes its full year results. In the second half of the programme, Joe Brennan of the Irish Times will be giving me his view on what's likely to happen. But first, we'll start with retail. Since March 2020, bricks and mortar retail in Ireland has been mostly shut due to COVID-19 lockdown restrictions. This has left many tenants with little or no income and struggling to pay their rents. Inevitably, this has led to disputes with landlords who themselves have their own businesses to run. The result is that some landlords have gone to the High Court to enforce the terms of their leases, putting the future of those retail tenants in jeopardy. Joining me now on the line to discuss this thorny issue is Michael Callaghan, Head of Commercial Finance of luxury Irish retailer Carrick Don, and Mark Paul, Business Affairs Correspondent of the Irish Times. Now, Mark Paul, this was a topic that you were writing about in the Irish Times uh, last week. Just uh, run us through the, the main issues that are cropping up between tenants and their landlords at the minute. Well, obviously, Kieran, because non-essential retail is forcibly closed by the state with antivirus restrictions, a lot of these retailers are building up rent arrears. And so it's creating this massive bubble within the rental sector that at some stage is going to burst. So, you know, that situation really needs to be dealt with. So, you know, I spoke to a lot of individual retailers who were having difficulties in terms of rent arrears. I also spoke to some people who represent landlords and got their side of the story. But it's still a fact that one-fifth of all retailers at the moment are still carrying rent arrears from 2020 of between 40 and 60%. Now, that's before we even get into the lockdown we're in now. So you can imagine the difficulty that's coming down the line. What I found from talking to, to different retailers is that there tends to be different behavior from different types of landlords, i.e. private individual landlords tend to give better deals, retailers are finding, than maybe some institutional landlords or particularly pension funds and those kind of landlords. And then I suppose on top of all of this, there has been a structural change in consumer behaviour during the pandemic. You know, we're all sitting at our laptops, doing our shopping through Amazon and getting used to having our shopping brought and delivered to our door. So there's also a question as to how much of a recovery non-essential retail can make sort of in the face of that structural change in consumer behaviour and what impact that will have on rents. I mean, we've already seen this week that the uh, um, um, the governor of the central bank, Gabriel McClough, has made this exact same point. He said, you know, there are going to be difficulties for bricks and mortar retailers in future and um, with that change in behaviour. So you have this massive rent arrears bubble, you have this change in consumer behaviour um, and then, uh, you know, all of this comes together and, and and it's a big, big challenge for retailers to face. And that's what I wrote about last week. I used, you know, I used several examples. Uh, one was a, a man who runs a Palestinian businessman called Mohammed Al Kurd, who runs a chain of um, hairdressers, uh, upscale hairdressers in Dublin. And I wrote about his difficulties with one of his um, um, shopping centre landlords. Um, I wrote about uh, uh, some of the measures that have been put in place like by companies like Carrick Dunn and Fields Jewellers and, and lots of other retailers. So it's a kind of a constant theme across the sector at the moment. This is a problem that needs to be dealt with um, and whether it's getting everybody around the table or whether it's some sort of government intervention, but it's not going to go away on its own. People are going to have to make decisions to deal with this issue. Michael Callahan, you're head of commercial finance at Carrick Don, a luxury goods retailer that will be familiar to many people. You're based out of Westport in County Mayo. I think you've 42 retail outlets, so you're dealing with multiple landlords. What's been your experience uh, during the pandemic? 
Thanks, Kieran. Yeah, um, our experience during the first lockdown was we got out early and we engaged with our landlords early in the process. And it was a real mixed bag. I have to say the majority of them came to the table with the right attitude, realised that this was a pandemic that was affecting everyone. It wasn't a tenant only issue. And that was very positive. So um, effectively, we approached the um, communication with our landlords with a real sense of a shared pain approach where, look, we're in this together to a certain extent and um, it's going to impact both parties. So with most landlords, the first time it was very positive in terms of we ended up reaching agreements. We got things like a write-off of the rent for the lockdown. In return, we extended a lease period or we took a rent review or a break off the table. So we were given certainty to landlords and they were giving us support. And that was much appreciated at the time because particularly early in the first lockdown, none of us knew the impact of the government support, which has been very welcome, I have to say, in terms of both the rates and the wage support. Um, Now at the moment, um, where that left us was really out of 37 different landlords, we'd reached agreement with all but five. So the majority, you know, came to the table with the right approach and very similar to what Mark was Mentioning, we now find ourselves in a position where we've got a rent hangover with those five landlords. We want to deal with it because obviously our shareholders want it off the table and they want us being able to plan for the future. And it's probably where government will have to come in with some sort of arbitration service to get people around the table to reach commercial agreements and move on because it's in nobody's interest to have this rent hangover or rent bubble there um, because it's going to it's going to impact both the tenant and the landlord as we go forward. Michael, in terms of the 32 landlords who've done deals with you, I mean, what kind of deals uh, have they done? What kind of breaks have you uh, received on your rent? Generally, for, for quarter two, uh, we would get a full write-off. And that was, that was, as I say, that was taking a real shared pain approach. So we would extend out our lease maybe for a year, or in some instances, we might take off a tenant-only break. So again, that was given the landlord certainty of future revenue. So those deals seem to work quite well for both the landlord and their bankers where there was a bank involved. Um, in the second and third lockdown, we're just having those discussions now. And that seems to be more a case of where the market seems to be leaning to is 50-50, that there's a re- realisation that the tenant doesn't have the funds to pay for the period during during lockdown you know, as, as, as I was saying to Mark um, for the article, by the end of March, we'll have been shut for 32 out of 52 weeks. So in terms of the impact that that has on cash flow, it, it's, it's an impact that most retailers will feel. And regardless of how well online is doing, it doesn't make up for um, losing out on revenue from 42, from 42 stores over 32 weeks. What's been the impact on revenue, Michael? And in terms of staff numbers, what's been the impact there? Um, unfortunately, in terms of staff numbers, uh, we're very lucky to have a very loyal staff base. We have close to 500 employees across the country. And unfortunately, at the moment, what it means is we're down to about 60 to 70, primarily working in online and in head office administration roles. So uh, we'd <laughs> we'd welcome the opportunity to get our staff back. But obviously, you know, like all other retailers, we respect the need for uh, us all to follow the government's guidance at this time. So um from a staffing perspective, it's been very unfortunate, but uh, our HR team do a great job in keeping in touch with all those staff. And there's a lot of uh, 
activities and engagement just to make sure um, everybody's doing well. And they've been very supportive of the company as well, where we've asked them maybe to come in and check stores, etc. from time to time. Um, so they've been excellent. In terms of um, revenue, I suppose we've been closed for 60% of the last 52 weeks. The revenue fall off, thankfully, hasn't been that dramatic because of the time of the year. So we're probably looking for last year of a fall off of somewhere close to 30% in our revenues. Okay. Now, the five landlords that you're you're still in negotiation with, shall we say, or maybe you're in dispute with, I, I don't know which term you want to put on it, but what's the state of play with those with those talks? Uh, we'll remain positive, Karen. We'll say we're, we're still in negotiations with them. So uh, from our perspective, um, it, it, there's still a little bit of over and back. But I would have to say, unfortunately, a number of them are being unrealistic. They're seeing this as a tenant-only issue. They're holding the line that, well, our centres were open. Well, actually, they weren't. They would have been in breach of government guidelines if they were. So they might have a tank, a, a, an anchor tenant such as a Tesco or a Duns that was open, but the rest of the centre, none of the facilities were open. There wasn't, um, you know, toilets, there wasn't car parks open, etc. So they're holding the line that we have a lease and we have to work towards the lease. And we understand you have problems, but we have problems too with our banks. And generally, um, Kieran, they're the landlords that are controlled by the bigger pension funds. And I think what a lot of them tried to do was try to reach the end of the year in the hope that this thing would have gone away and then they could figure out could they um, renegotiate payments over a longer time but not give any relief. The reality is, as Mark has outlined earlier, without the relief, a lot of tenants and a lot of businesses will go to the walls. So they'll find themselves in a situation where there isn't... uh, there's not going to be an uptake on these units if they can't come to the table and reach agreements of some sort, Karen. Mark, we have seen situations where these disputes have gone legal, where landlords have gone to the court seeking winding up orders, haven't we? It's kind of a nuclear tactic uh, taken by some landlords. Yes, if, if you look at the, the list of what's called, it, it's, it's the summary judgment list on the High Court, and that's where it's usually over a, a dispute over a contract, and it's usually where one side will go into the High Court and ask a judge to give a ruling without a trial on the basis that I have a contract, this person has clearly broken it. And now we, we've seen lots and lots and lots of those cases filed since the beginning of the pandemic. A lot of them are, are in relation to specific landlords, so which is indicative of the fact that specific landlords are using this as a specific tactic. I mean, one landlord that that stands out, that really does stand out in this regard is the Jervis Centre uh, in, in Dublin City Centre, which is co-owned by Paddy McKillen, a very well-known uh, property developer. Um, and it seems to be taking this approach with several of its tenants. So the thing about uh, the, the High Court Summary Judgment route is that if the tenant doesn't play ball or doesn't blink, well, then the landlord is going to have to follow through on that threat. And if the tenant disputes it, it goes to a trial and then it becomes a big, expensive process. And then you wonder, what's the point anyway? So um, to try and find some sort of a resolution is something that Michael alluded to there. The retail sector has called for some sort of, I guess, forced arbitration, some sort of government mandated arbitration. Now, that I think that the, the landlord side of the argument has some difficulties with that because what are the, what it effectively is asking the government to do, and, and you know we can't shy away from this, it's sort of like asking the government to retrospectively interfere in contracts. And this was the reason why the government always refused to ban upward-only rent reviews where they were already in place in the contract. They banned those. Remember a decade ago during the last financial crisis, there was the big hullabaloo over upward-only rent reviews, and the government banned them from that point forward. But it didn't retrospectively ban them because it said... It 
would have interfered in contract law. So look, as always in this, you know, the retailers are losing out, the landlords are losing out, the lawyers are uh, are coining it, and, and they'll continue to. And, you know, there's a lot of big names also involved, big name tenants involved in those um, high court cases. You'll see Eason's has been sued by several of its landlords, and um, you'll see Boots. Um, so it's not just small landlords and small retailers that are on the receiving end of this. Another point that the landlord side tends to make is that some of the really, really big retailers, and I'm not obviously not including Carrick Dunn in this, but some of the really big retailers with a lot of units are maybe using their strength a little bit or their leverage on some smaller landlords and are just refusing to pay rent as a negotiation tactic. So, you know, it's an endemic problem within the retail sector. Um, it's, it's very difficult to see how it's going to turn out. Uh, you know, a lot of some retailers may go to the wall, but then there's also the thorny question as to, you know, do some re- should some retailers go to the wall? Not because I want to see businesses go bust or people lose their job, but because of this structural change in consumer behavior, particularly in certain sectors, some parts of retailing don't have as bright a future as others. I mean, if you take something like, for example, like retailers that are very, very heavily dependent upon tourists, like somewhere like um, House of Ireland, which was just at the bottom of Grafton Street, and that closed a few months ago because the tourism market um, is, is, let's face it, the tourism market is screwed for at least the next 18 months. Um, so uh, there are specific sectors of, of retailing, specific markets um, where it's not going to go back to the way it was before the pandemic. It's not going to go back to the way it was before the pandemic in terms of their relationship with landlords. Um, and there's going to be some pain that has to be taken at some stage in this process. Michael, you are nodding in agreement there with a lot of Mark's points. No, absolutely. You know, Mark Mark makes them very valid points there. And we would see that there's a there's a need for openness from both the landlord and the tenant. Nobody's winning here. And Mark is absolutely right. You know, different tenants are in different situations. And I can understand why the landlord then, as a result, is very concerned that some people are making doing well out of this, shall we say. Um, and it's, it's, it definitely has to be a case of negotiation by negotiation. And we've, you know, with our landlords, we've been very open. We've shared accounts. We've shared, they get our footfall figures for the centres anyway. So it's all been above board and it's been really with a view to how do we work through this together? Because there is no doubt, as Mark has outlined, the landscape has changed. You know, we've seen, we came back, there was no doubt, but, you know, in between lockdowns, Consumers were out, they weren't out in the same numbers and they were out to just achieve something. It was browsing was gone. It was get in, get the present, get get the item I need and get out again. Now, that will change over time. But, you know, even if we take our own online and our team did an amazing job during the lockdowns, we went forward, we would say, by about four or five years in terms of where online ended out um, at the end of last year compared to what we would have forecast. So we ended out at 2023-24 levels. So it's that type of step change has happened, there's no doubt. And um, it it will take time for things to come back to some level of normality within the old shopping centre model. And we don't know what that'll look like. So, um, you know, Mark's points are very well made. It's a time for engagement and it probably is why there will be a need for some sort of arbitration service because no doubt every landlord-tenant relationship is different. The length of time left in the lease or licence agreement is different. You know, there may be guarantees in place. As Mark mentioned, there may be upward-only rent there. So it's a need for looking at each legal agreement um, 
on its own merit as such. So um, I would totally agree with Mark's points. Michael, I suppose question marks hanging over the future of bricks and mortar retail now for a number of years uh, with the slow and steady rise of e-commerce. The pandemic has accelerated all of that. And Gabriel McClough's point about, you know, his concern about the future of bricks and mortar uh, retail going forward, that there mightn't be the same sort of demand. How do you see that playing out? I mean, is this the moment of truth, if you like, for for the retail sector, for physical retail in Ireland and, and probably elsewhere as well? Will we look back in, in history and sort of say this was the time when physical retail, you know, died out or substantially died out, uh, as it were, and online took over? I, th- I think that's a it's a very good point, Kieran. Um I would hope we'll look back and we'll see say that it was a game changer. I think it'll be a case of physical retail needing to reinvent itself and needing to... I, I personally believe that there's still a very uh, important place for physical um, retail and it's, it's very much an important part of our strategy going forward. We would be, be um, very much looking at a mixed strategy of growing both online and physical retail and we would see a, we would see a place for both. But I think there is that sea change that has happened and I think we were seeing it coming through in terms of generational switches anyway you know I can see it at home with having two teenage daughters in terms of their shopping habits are very different from Carrick Dunn's traditional um, customer base but there's no doubt that is changing but I think what won't change is people's need to get out and to be social we are social beings at the end of the day and that need to go out and have the shopping trip and you know, hopefully return into city centre, enjoy the coffees, enjoy the everything that the city centre has to offer. That will be slow, but it will come back. But I, I would, your point is very well made. There's no doubt that the dynamic will have changed and we'll probably see more of a case of that um, bricks and mortar may be more the window to your audience, but they still may come and, and, and uh purchase online rather than doing it in store, but they'll they'll probably use the store to browse a little bit more. But at the moment, we'd be very happy that we have a good balance between the two. And um, as you rightly say, we'll probably see that balance go more towards online in the coming years. So if you look out five to 10 years, you have 42 outlets now. How many do you think you might have in a decade's time? Well, uh, we have a very aggressive MD, Pat Hughes. So I think uh, Pat will always be... Um, he will always be looking at the opportunity to grow the brand within Ireland and indeed further afield. So um, I, I would think we would be looking at, you know, before the pandemic, we were sort of growing at a rate of three a year. And I think we will return to that um, in some ways. It's like all downturns. There will be opportunities for well-managed businesses and we would see ourselves in that category. So we would always be looking out and saying, is there an opportunity to maybe you know, look at a, an, another retailer that might add five to 10 stores. So take a step change that way. So we would probably see ourselves looking out five years, you know, being definitely over the 50 stores. Um, and if we look out 10 years, going more towards the 75. So we would we would like to see that balance continuing. There's no doubt that will be alongside very strong online growth. And as I say, we've seen that take a major step change last year. And that's continued during this current lockdown. Mark, in terms of the here and now, is there a role for governments to play in trying to mediate disputes 
between landlords and tenants? Well, you know, there is there is that issue as to as to, to what extent the government can interfere in private contracts. There's certainly a role for government in trying to get them around the table and trying to get some sort of a forum discussion going as to whether or not that is a formal arbitration process or whatever. I don't know. I think it would be very hard to force anything on, on, onto, onto landlords. And, you know, landlords obviously have their own issues with banks and so on. I think with regards to the wider retail sector and touching on something that Michael mentioned there, that, you know, people want to go out and it's important that, that, that you know, it's good for city centres and, and town centres to have retailers and vibrant retailers. There, I think there's a very, very definite role for government and for the, for the state to play in promoting that. I think it, this is more than just a slight industry issue between retailers and landlords as to the future of bricks and mortar retail. It's a real social and cultural issue. Um, I mean, governments over over the last you know number of decades have poured billions and billions of euro and billions and billions of, of, of private capital has gone into um, um, urbanisation and, and urban renewal. And if shops and, and whatever, if they become um, old-fashioned in a sense and city centres begin to decay, there's all sorts of social issues, crime issues, residential issues around those sort of issues. And that's where the government, I think, will play a strong role. But you know, look, it's difficult to see uh, how this is all going to play out in the future. I mean, my daughter is nine, almost 10 years of age. And at the moment, she's negotiating with me to get a Revolut card to get her pocket money put on just so that if she wants this, she can buy stuff online. These are the kind of issues, you know, the future issues that, that, that the retail sector is going to have to deal with. I mean, we're aware of that from the newspaper issue, that young people don't buy newspapers in the same way um, that a lot of older people do. And I think young people are going to shop in a slightly different way. I mean, if my almost 10 year old can negotiate with me over a Revolut card. Um, I mean, God knows where this thing is going to end. How's that negotiation uh, going, Mark? <laughs> well, I, I'm currently appointing advisors at the moment, Kieran, and, and development and negotiation strategy, but I think she uh, she's bringing more teeth to the table than me. Michael, have you any sense of when you might be able to open up again, open your stores? Uh, have you been in discussions with, I presume your industry bodies have been in discussions with government about this? Yeah, I think it's fair to say that uh, Duncan and the team at REI have been engaged with um, government every step of the way and indeed been very supportive. At the moment, we don't have any firm um, timelines. All we can say, Karen, is from our perspective, we've been planning towards early April. We have no reason for that outside of just uh, the tarnished as comments back in early January where he talked about it being at least the end of quarter one. Right now, that's what we're working towards. That's what we're engaged with our staff on, our suppliers, etc. But you know that could change, and again, we will we will work with the government on that. I think it's it's it, it's as I said earlier, it's for landlords, tenants, everybody to be part of the solution. And I think equally, um, retail wants to make sure. Hopefully, when we come back this time, there are no future lockdowns. So uh, we'll be supportive of whatever line the government take. And you've still got five negotiations to complete with your landlords. Is there is there a threat to the overall business? That if one of these uh, negotiations, one or more of the negotiations doesn't work out, that there could be, uh, you know, there could be a threat to the whole business? No, thankfully, Kieran, uh, we're, we're in a strong position and uh, I think we're, you know, a well-managed business. So thankfully, we don't find ourselves in that situation. And as um, Mark mentioned earlier, we dealt with the upward only issue with our landlords probably five or six years ago. So we took the majority of those off the table, thankfully. And, you know, in fairness... I do think there's a willingness to engage and I think landlords are, are equally seeing that there's there's no future in having empty units in centres. That, that's not, that doesn't add to the experience when people come back out. It won't help with footfall. So there's a need to reach an agreement at some level. And in in fairness, the, the, the five that were 
negotiating with, I'd say we're down to the case of one being really difficult. And again, I have to understand that, you know, they've got owners outside the country who are holding it a, a, a pretty tough line, but that that one may end up in court. And if that's the case, you know, we'd be very confident in terms of our ability to uh, to influence the outcome in that we've done everything right. Like we're trying to continue to support, we're continuing to pay service charge, pay insurance. So it's not a case of that we're just um, being adamant that we're not paying anything. We know that cash flow has to work for all sides. But, uh, you know, to the points in the article, it really does come down to negotiation and people realising that it's a pandemic and we all have a role to play in following the government advice. It's not just a tenant's decision to close in this instance. Mark, final word to you. Uh, when do you think retail might be allowed to reopen again? And is this likely to be the last of the lockdowns or could we see more later in the year? Um, well, as to when retail might reopen, look, it's not going to reopen this side of Easter. It's probably going to be non-essential retail. You, you would have to think they're, they're going to start with schools on the 1st of March and they're going to they're going to phase in the schools, then they'll phase in restriction. I think it would probably be May, sometime in May. Um, they will want to have non-essential retail open and trading again and with a, trading with a straight back heading into the summer for, uh, for you know, for when, when people are off schools and so on. As to how long they'll stay trading for and will there be another lockdown? Look, I really don't know. I don't think the government has a clue, Kieran. Uh, as to, you know, I mean, they can vaccinate um, all of the, the vulnerable and elderly people and so on. Um, but, you know, if there's still 70 or 80% of the population unvaccinated and the virus gets a hold again, you know, that's enough to overwhelm the hospitals again. And that's the fear. Um, so, look, hopefully the summer weather and the, 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 the renewed ability to do things outside helps to keep that at bay. But it's uh, it's going to be a long, long, hard road ahead uh, for non-essential retail. And I think one particular issue that is going to arise and is going to put pressure on the government's position is that when the UK and the UK seems to be, the UK's government seems to be ideologically of a mind to, to push for the opening of retail, when that happens and when that happens north of the border and when people from the Republic um, are driving north of the border to do their shopping and the shops are still closed here, I think you'll see pressure on the government then. But look, People will uh, uh, use it as a recreational thing. I think we're all short of a little uh, bit to do at the moment and uh, uh, the chance of doing a little bit of shopping on a Saturday afternoon seems pretty nice to me right now. Okay, Mark Paul of the Irish Times and Michael Callaghan of Carrickdon, thank you for joining us. We're going to take a short break now. When I return, I'll be talking to Joe Brennan about the future of Ulster Bank in the Republic. At Davy, the best conversations are always more than one way. We know it's even more important to listen than it is to talk. It's how we get to know our clients personally, by listening to you carefully and understanding what's important to your life, your family and your future. Then we can talk about a financial life plan that will suit you best. Davy, it's not just business, it's personal. Janie Davy, trading as Davy, is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. We take our responsibilities personally. Welcome back. This is Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. I'm joined now on the line by Joe Brennan of the Irish Times to discuss the future of Ulster Bank here. Will it stay or will it go? Now, Joe Brennan, you broke the story late last year that Ulster Bank might be exiting the market here in the Republic. On Friday, NatWest, its UK parent, has its full year results. They've been undertaking a strategic review, we're told, of Ulster Bank's future. And we're expecting some class of an outcome, if you like, on Friday. What should we be looking for? Yeah, look, I, I think um, Friday is certainly the day when they would be really be expected to kind of give uh, a clear view as to what they're looking to do. They've been hanging out to this. So we last September, we reported that they were carrying out a strategic review and that 
top of the agenda was looking at the notion of winding down the business. So I think enough time has passed since then. There's been a lot of uncertainty. Uh, certainly people working for the, uh, the the company, they've dealt with that uncertainty for that length of period of time. You also have customers um, dealing with the uncertainty as well. So I think the uh, chief executive of NatWest, Alison Rose, would really on Friday have to come out and, and spell out clearly what the ultimate decision uh, for, for Ulster Bank will be. Joe, why would NatWest consider closing Ulster Bank in the Republic? So I think NatWest, or it was originally a Royal Bank of Scotland or RBS. I think ever since uh, 2008, 2009, uh, when NatWest had to start, or RBS had to start injecting capital into Ulster Bank to keep the show on the road, I think the love had been lost for Ulster Bank. Uh, if you look at it all told, um, by the time they completed the, the capital injections at Ulster Bank, it equated to 17, uh, 15 billion uh, pounds sterling. Uh, or 17 billion uh, euros. And that was the equivalent of a third of what RBS itself received from the UK taxpayer for its own bailout back in 2008. And when you consider the fact that only 3% of RBS's assets were Ulster Bank at that time. So it, it's certainly an overproportional kind of loss was, was borne by the UK taxpayer indirectly in, 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 in Ulster Bank versus the rest of RBS itself. So I think the level was lost there from, from then. Now, they carried out a number of reviews, some quietly, uh, some more publicly. In 2013, they were looking at potential asset swaps between NAMA in the UK and, and, and assets of, of Ulster Bank that was under the auspices of the UK Treasury, which uh, had a controlling stake in, in, in RBS and continues to have a controlling stake in RBS. It was decided at the time to push some of the, uh, the, the non-performing or the, the, the toxic commercial real estate assets into a, a, an internal bad bank and to sell them into the market at the same time when you had uh, the remnants of Anglo being sold into the market and you had uh, NAMA also selling at loan sales, uh, carrying out loan sales as well. Then cut to 2014, they carried out a separate review uh, and that review uh, looked at uh, potentially merging with another bank and taking on a uh, maybe private equity investment as well. And the view there was trying to lower the stake in Ulster Bank below 50%, where it had to be consolidated onto the RBS balance sheet. Now, there are a number of reasons why that was an odd time to be carrying out a review, because remember back in 2014, that was when... Ulster Bank and the other Irish banks were beginning to release some of the provisions that they'd set aside for for bad loans and and banks had just turned into profitability around that time. Uh, Also at the time, RBS was carrying out a was looking to uh, to scrape out or to separate its Williams and Glynn unit. And RBS didn't have a great track record for uh, cutting out IT or, or, or carving out IT. So if you had the double the execution risk if you were trying to separate Williams and Glynn and also doing the same with, with Ulster Bank. So it didn't make sense there as well. And thirdly, back in 2013, um, you had Ulster Bank in the North and Ulster Bank in the Republic. They were essentially under the same holding company in the North. So there was that, that intertwining of the two businesses. So it would have been very difficult to separate one from the other operationally. Now, since then, um, you have the release of provisions that were taken during the financial crisis. That's largely been played out. Uh, so you're not handing the upside over to someone else. The Williams and Glynn issue, um, the UK government, so the RBS managed to get a derogation from, from the European Commission not to sell that in the end. It ended up selling off the, the closing down branches left, right and centre. And also they separated uh, Ulster Bank in the Republic from, from, from Northern Ireland. So it made it operationally more easy to do so. 
this has been something that's been they've been looking at it for you know and we come back a number of times to this and if you look at there's a new ceo in town uh alison rose became ceo of natwest back in late 2019 and early on she kind of tackled some of the the big issues and, and the, the one big issue was natwest markets which like Ulster bank was a high cost business low return for for shareholders and she went about early last year downsizing or, or shrinking that business and she also she actually managed to get through the board to, to change the, the idea of changing the RBS name, which carried connotations in relation to the uh, to the, the the financial crisis. She managed to, to to convince the board to change the name to to NatWest. And, and the other big problem child in the group, if you look at it from an outside investor, and if you look at it from Treasury in the UK as well, is Ulster Bank. It, it, it remains. A, a high cost business. I think it's it's it's, it's cost to income ratio in, in recent years, even before COVID nineteen, was somewhere in the region between ninety five and one hundred and ten, hundred eleven percent. Whereas banks ordinarily would target something around fifty percent. Uh, so it's more than double uh, the, the the cost ratio you would talk about. And the big big issue is just the level of capital that's tied up in the Irish business. If you look at UK banks. Irish banks have to hold twice as much capital relative to all of their assets uh, versus UK banks. But if you look at Ulster Bank in particular itself, it's holding double the amount of capital that even an Irish bank would be required to hold or would expect or target to hold over the medium term. And while they've managed to kind of extract 3.5 billion out of the bank in in recent years by way of dividends to, to, to RBS or NatWest, there clearly is reluctance uh, among regulators, either in Dublin or in Frankfurt, to allow them to release that capital. And that really shrinks what they can make as a return, what the investors can make a return from the investment in, in Ulster Bank. Let's assume that NatWest does decide to close Ulster Bank in the Republic. What will that mean for retail customers, for SMEs, for staff? And what will the market look like without Ulster Bank in it? It depends on how this is done. If this is a slow wind down and they sell off loans in various batches, staff may move with that. Um, if it's a slow wind down, you also need staff to continue to, to manage the assets and manage the loans and manage the deposits for whatever period of time in which they're continuing to be regulated. But if you look at the, the loan book itself, the big issue is, in Ireland is the SME part of the business. So they have about 4.5 billion of SME loans, but pure SME loans will be around half of that, but 2.5 billion. And the central bank has made it clear that if we didn't already know that there are essentially only three players in the SME market. You have Bank of Ireland, AIB and Ulster Bank. And if you reduce that to two, obviously you have reduced it to a duopoly. So I think there's a real, there would, you would expect there would be a real push, at least politically, to try and find some solution for the, the SME book. And the natural contender for that the natural home for that would be a permanent TSB, which is essentially a a, a mortgage bank itself. It's a, it's a kind of a monoline business in, it, in itself. And it's been looking to kind of build up an SME book from a very, very low base. So there will be a natural fit there. Now, whether something happens there or not, it's hard, it, it, it's hard to really know. In terms of the other parts of the loan book, the other banks may be interested in the SME book, they may be precluded for competition reasons in taking on that business. They may be interested in some of the performing Ulster Bank uh, mortgages. It's an overall overall loan book of about 20, 21 billion. Uh, but within that, you have about 
six to seven billion of, of tracking mortgages. These are low yielding tracking mortgages. And I don't think anyone would be particularly interested in that. If they were to go about winding down, that may be a, a book they could actually kind of refinance in the bond market uh, through a kind of mechanism as, uh, known as a securitization. So that's probably the more likely way of, of dealing with that. So customers, you're, it depends where you end up, but your contract remains the same. If, you're a, if you are a customer um, that is meeting the, the terms of your loan, they can't vary that. That can't be varied no matter where that ends up. On the deposit front, so it's about 22 billion euro deposit book. If you think back to Bank of Scotland, Ireland, which was the last big, big bank to kind of uh, hand back its license back in 2010, there was a huge clamour among the other banks for their deposits because the banks were losing deposits. Uh, deposits were running out the door at the time in the middle of the financial crisis. This time around, the banks have the opposite problem. They have too many deposits uh, and they're having to basically put um, some of their excess deposits in, in, in with the ECB and the ECB is charging negative rates. So basically charging banks for the luxury of holding onto their money up to a, a rate of minus, uh, a charge of minus 0.5%. So there isn't a natural home for for the deposits. Um, so we'll have to see how that's dealt with. They can't just shift them off. There isn't a natural home to try and soak them, soak them somewhere else. But by the same token, you know, Ulster Bank will be pushing to try and get people to to move them somewhere. And I think all told, it'll probably increase the, the likelihood of, of negative rates uh, being applied by banks more widely than they have been in the past. Uh, up until recently, negative interest rates had been charged to kind of corporate customers down to SMEs. And, and, and recently kind of more high net worth individuals, you may see negative interest rates kind of permeate the kind of the retail banking space more as you're trying to deal with this huge lump of, of, of deposits potentially coming onto the market. Joe, you mentioned mortgage holders there. Their contract, uh, if it is sold on, it'll just be owned by somebody else. The terms of the contract will still be there. But for people who are in default with their repayments, have been struggling, they might be fearful that if this loan gets sold to a vulture fund, for example, that they mightn't be as sympathetic towards them as a bank such as Ulster Bank, let's say. Um, and they might also be worried, obviously in COVID, a lot of people have had to defer repayments, uh, have been on payment breaks, and a lot of people have been laid off and put out of work temporarily. No guarantee that they're going to get back to full employment or to their full pay whenever the economy does open fully. So there must be a lot of nervousness among, among Ulster Bank mortgage customers as to the outcome of this review. Yeah, I mean, if you are, um, a, a portion of the book anyway would be non-performing even before COVID-19 and, and, and banks having to deal with uh, payment breaks. And ultimately, this year we'll see a spike in, in, in non-performing loans there as well. Um, I imagine one way or the other, a, a chunk of those loans will end up anyway being sold, even if Ulster Bank were to remain in the market to try and continue to lower its, its non-performing loans ratio. And, and it comes down to whether you think that these so-called vulture funds or investment funds handle customers any differently to the banks. I mean, they were are required to hold to to abide by the consumer protection codes. Um, talk to central bankers, and they say that there is no. They've seen no real difference in terms of how customers are treated either by the investment funds or or banks themselves. And and in some cases, um, these so-called vulture funds uh, are open to you know offering even better terms or more imaginative terms to deal with non-performing loans than, say, a regular bank, because they don't have to deal with the whole moral hazard issue that a bank would have to deal with. If they're offering something unique to one borrower, 
someone else gets wind of that and it may kind of lead to others kind of taking a different approach, other borrowers taking a different approach to how they deal with their loans. Now, Joe, we're assuming that Ulster Bank is definitely going to close, but there are other options available to NatWest. Maybe you could chat to us about them. In particular, what about the option of maybe just having a digital-only bank? Yeah, I mean, the problem with Ulster Bank is it's not well known for its IT capabilities. If you cast back to 20, 2012, when 600,000 customers uh, lost access to their um, to their accounts for a period of time, I think the bank ended up having to pay $60 million in compensation and got a, a fine from the centre-back at 3.5 uh, million euros. Um, I, I don't think Ulster Bank really stands out as a kind of digital-first type bank. Uh, while they've been able to leverage off the, 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 the RBS systems and the investment that has gone in there, I think Ulster Bank has been on the hind, hind foot in terms of, of that actually being spent in, on the systems in Ireland. And we continue to see, you know, even in recent years, we continue to see small outages in terms of being able to take money out of, of ATMs as well. So I, I don't know. I'm not so sure about that. Um, the one area is, unlike the, the Ulster Bank has a, has a decent uh, corporate banking business. Um, there probably isn't a natural home in, in either AIB or Bank of Ireland who kind of like step back from corporate banking uh, back after the crisis. Um, so maybe they could do some sort of suitcase kind of banking um, out in, in Dublin. They may be able to use, the, the, there is a, uh, a banking license in the Netherlands. Uh, they may be able to use that as, as, as the base and branch it into, into Ireland. That's if they decide to, to retrench from Ireland. Joe, what does the market in the Republic look like without Ulster Bank in it? On the mortgage front, it removes one player. There are a few other players that come in, like non-bank uh, providers that have moved into the market in recent times. Uh, and you also had uh, Bank Inter as well, uh, Avant Money coming in in recent times. So less of an issue for mortgages, um, more of an issue for, 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 for the SME, uh, SME market, where it has about a 25, sorry, a 20% share of the SME market, which is a sizable chunk of that market. Around the mortgage market, you're talking 15, 16%. Um, but 20%, you know, it's having a bank that has 25, 20% market share leaving an industry, leaving a sector, leaving a country is, 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 is a big move in itself. Is there anything the government can do? Is there any pressure that the Minister for Finance, Pascal Dunne, who let's say can put on his UK counterpart, Rishi Sunak, who is a majority shareholder uh, in that West, dating back to you know, a legacy of the last financial crash? Yeah, I mean, I think... Politically, uh, if you look at the political drop, backdrop as well, I think relations between Dublin and London since Brexit are probably, you know, not where they were prior to uh, 2016. Uh, so I don't think, you know, that maybe the political angle isn't, isn't as strong as it could have been in the past. Um, but you can be sure that the, that the government is, is very cognizant of this. I mean, it will be, you know, if they decide on Friday to, to leave, it'll be major negative headlines uh, and with ramifications for the government in terms of government policy in current terms of the, the, the banking drop backdrop in, in, in Ireland as well so absolutely and, and competition particularly in the SME market will be a, a live issue Okay Joe so we'll get a decision at 7am on Friday morning If they're coming that'll be the time of the results and if they've something to say it'll be 7am on Friday morning yeah Okay, well, you'll get the latest news on that by logging into irishtimes.com forward slash business, where Joe Brennan will be reporting on the outcome of the NatWest results and what that will mean for Ulster Bank. Okay, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Joe Brennan, Michael Callahan, and Mark Paul. Thanks also to our sponsor, Davy Group, for its continued support. Jennifer Ryan produced the show this week. 
Remember, you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our business today. Email at irishtimes.com. You can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook each day. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care and stay safe. <laughs>